Welcome to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast with your host, Darren Herman. This podcast explores the world of sports cards from a variety of angles. Being a hobbyist collector for over 30 years, a professional software investor and angel investor in and around the card space, and a proud father who is raising children who collect and appreciate sports cards. If you want to learn more about Midlife Crisis Cards, head over to midlifecrisiscards.com where you can read his journey to card collecting, his history, and find some awesome individual cards to purchase from his personal collection. Or check out our brand new product, the Cardboard Box, a personalized and hand-selected box of cards that arrive at your front door. On the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast, we explore the convergence of Darren's worlds in the sports card industry, where hobby meets business. Without further ado, Please meet our host, Darren Herman, a.k.a. at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram and dherman76 on Twitter. Hello, Midlife Crisis Cards podcast. This is Darren Herman, a.k.a. Midlife Crisis Cards. I had a ton of fun putting this podcast together with the CEO of Collectible, Ezra Levine. He... Uh, has a unique story, which you'll hear shortly, about how he got into the space and how he got involved in sports leagues. Uh, And we got to talk about all about the world of fractional ownership of cards uh, and memorabilia. Uh, And along the way, we detoured into the New York Knicks uh, and a handful of other places. So this is this is a fun one. You know, we we talked about how this fractional ownership space is is playing out how it actually works, how IPOs are set for cards, how the SEC gets involved, how you price. Uh, There's a lot of stuff in here. And so if you're studying the fractional ownership space, this is absolutely an interesting podcast to uh, check out. And uh, thank you so much for giving me your time and attention. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. As always, please reach out. uh, dherman76 on Twitter, Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram, reach out, send feedback. I always want to hear. We want to make this better. And if you have any folks that we should be talking to in the future, ideas for future podcasts, as always, reach out. A great primer or post follow-up to this podcast is to check out altoninsights.com. They're tracking the entire fractional ownership space. Uh, and uh, check out some of their charting and some of their data. Uh, it'll absolutely help you understand you know, the, f- the upcoming IPOs and some of the excitement about them and how uh, uh, previous IPOs and uh, launches have gone. Uh, again, that's altoninsights.com. I hope you enjoy. All right, we've got Ezra Levine here from Collectible the number one fractional investing platform for sports. All fans of all income brackets can experience the pride of ownership in history's most rare and important collectibles. That's quite the statement, Ezra. Welcome to the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast. I'm happy to have you here. Uh, how are you doing on this fine evening, Mr. Levine? I, I'm doing great. As you, as you mentioned, Earlier, we have a big, big Knicks game on tonight. Huge Knicks game on tonight. Our our mutual love of the Knicks is something that you and I have both commiserated over for for a long time. Only to see, we finally have a respectable team. Finally, absolutely. We're, we're, so now now we're going down a rat hole already. Yeah. We're not even what thirty seconds into this. I'll tell you, you five, 
500 basketball has never felt so good, right? The, the fact that we have a team that feels like we're progressing in the right direction. We're, we are moving forward. We, we've got the right team in place. We've got the right coach in place. 500 basketball really feels, feels glorious to us right now, doesn't it? I, I just wish I was be able to go to the garden and watch some games because I know the energy, you know, way back in the day when the Knicks were winning and, you know, you and I suffered through a lot of not winning, we did. but I can only imagine, I guess the, I can only imagine the energy similar to what was it? The 17 win streak with Jeremy Lin. Um, you know, I was, I, I, I was actually at the first Jeremy Lin uh, night at the garden when he just went off against the Lakers that that garden was absolutely berserk that night and that and that really set off one of the greatest runs of Linsanity probably in basketball history it's amazing and you know they, they, they say in New York you know the uh, there's no party like MSG and when the Knicks that's are right. on you know that's, that's a right. fun place to be that's everyone's right everyone's having a great absolutely. time but uh I don't know. I, I found for the Knicks, again, we're down this rat hole, but let's keep going. So for the Knicks this year, it's been amazing for me. Um, you know, I moved to Boston five years ago, uh, and uh, but I still remain a, a loyal Knicks fan. And it's been amazing to see Julius Randle sort of, you know, come yeah. into himself. But, you know, more for me has been RJ, who's like really, you know, coming into his own as a young player in the league who shows tremendous poise and promise. And... Norland's Noel, like, you know, that guy is blocking shots. You know, he may not put up the points, you know, that, that uh, you know, others will put up, but we don't need him to do that. We need him to play defense and, and block some shots. And, uh, you know, he's, he's been amazing uh, watching, you know, taking over for Mitch, uh, who unfortunately is injured. And then Reggie Bullock sort of stepping up and being consistent night in, night out. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just been, been fun to watch that crew. I've, I've enjoyed my my favorite quote was when a Bullock came out and said, "We are not the core five; we're the core 15, Right? It's a, it was a total a total team effort. It is a it's it's a roster full of people who are are playing with clear chips on their shoulder. Guys who have Absolutely. something to prove. Randall is a guy who people wrote off. He was a 24, 25 year old guy who was never in the right place at the right time, ne- never had structure around him, was never featured. He, he spent all offseason working on his jump shot, and it shows. He's putting up absolutely tremendous numbers. So the great thing about Randall, too, is that in spite of, of the workload that is being put on his shoulders, his defense has been astounding this year. He's playing unbelievable defense. He's, he's rebounding. He's scoring. He's, he's just bringing real tremendous energy night in and night out and playing unbelievable in, in classic Tibbs fashion. He is just, yep. he is just burning guys down, and they're, and they're loving every second of it, which is exciting. It, it, just, it just shows what the right coach and the right culture in a program can do. Right, Having guys Absolutely. who are professional, who have a long-term game plan, and having players who buy into a system – my, my, my hope for the Knicks is we don't do anything to completely blow up the roster. I, I, don't, I don't want to trade seven draft picks for Lonzo Ball. I don't, I don't want to trade seven draft picks for, you know, for Bradley Beal. I, I want to I develop our team and, and, and sort of find role players and draft picks who can really take what we've built and expand on it. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I was holding my breath at the trade deadline. <laughs> that we weren't going to give up too much during that, uh, which the Knicks have a history of going after the star and giving away the farm to go do that. But anyway, speaking of that, you know, you've got, you know, a collectible 
uh, has a ton of stars, you know, a ton of, you know, uh, uh, pieces of memorabilia and cards that, uh, you know, are, are IPOing on the platform. Before we, before we even get there, you know, I'd love to know, you know, your background, you know, here on the podcast, we talk about, you know, the business of the business. Yep. How did you get into this? Like, you know, how, like how, how did you find yourself at Collectible one day? Like, what's that story? I will, I will start from the, the, the ground up, really. So, you know, like, like, like a lot of people who, who wind up in the collectible category, I, I grew up around it. I was a card collector myself. I have a treasure trove of junk wax that is sitting in my parents' basement that I continuously go back to time and time again just to make sure that there's not one gem in that mix. Uh, my dad really you know sort of has a has a true passion for for the industry he collects kofax cards mantle cards uh he he would leave us every single summer i'll never forget he would leave us every single summer for about four days to go off with his hobby buddies to, to the nationals it was always a running family joke that dad you know dad is is leaving us for a couple of days to go to That's cincinnati amazing. or go to uh, la or go to you know chicago only to come back with these prized little jewels that you know we would all sit around his bed and open up his mantles open up his kofaxes and he would explain to us the the history of the items the provenance of the items and you know really captivated us from a young age um cut to i you know sort of lost interest in the hobby like a lot of other people did throughout the whole junk wax era i went to college at michigan um and i, I came back to the city and i found myself working on wall street I was on Wall Street for about 10 years, and after about 10 years, there, there seems to be uh, this life cycle where after about a decade on Wall Street, you tend to get a little burnt out, and your options are you can kind of plow through it and survive it, or you can look for some other opportunity. I also had this other experience when I was working on Wall Street, which was I co-founded a minor league football league called the, the Spring League. Which I didn't know was this. Action, yeah, I co-founded a minor league football league. Uh, so a, a little bit of a backstory on the backstory is so I was at this hedge fund in New York City, and uh, I was an analyst, and I was covering primarily public equities in okay. the consumer, media, retail, and uh, sports sectors. And the hedge fund that I was at actually gave back all the outside capital, and we became a family office. When you become a family office, you're, you, you're, you, <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Right, so all, all, all mandates are tossed out the window. So we started getting creative. We were investing in, in commodity futures and private ventures. And you know, if, if, you, if you name it, we've, we've probably explored it. And I pitched an idea to our principal at the time in conjunction with a guy by the name of Brian Woods, who's now our CEO and commissioner. I said, you know what? Uh, the worst possible business I could think of would be an undercapitalized minor league football league. I think I can make it profitable. So we, we, we set out a whole business model where we literally stripped away all the costs of running uh, a, a sort of a decentralized football league, right? We said, look, you don't need franchises in 10 different cities. You don't need separate front offices for all different you know, franchises. Why don't we run one centralized office and give players and coaches in the league exactly what they want, right? The, you know, what, what we found was that the difference between guys who are on the 52-man roster in the NFL and guys who weren't was so little, so little. And oftentimes it was politics, right? It wasn't skill sets or ability to play or merit it was the politics of a general manager drafted a guy in the fifth sixth seventh round and didn't want to lose his job uh by taking on these, these undrafted yeah, free agents so right so we 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 created a a, a scouting event right a, a showcase model where we put on these showcases all across the country and uh, we gave guys the opportunity to to showcase their skills in front of nfl cfl 
AAF and XFL scouts. And the, the culmination of that was we developed a profitable minor league football league, which has sent over 400 players back to the NFL, CFL, XFL, and AAF. We recently signed uh, an equity deal with Fox Sports, and so we're playing on Fox Sports now. So I had this background of financial markets and sports entrepreneurship with this overlay of you know, having industry knowledge as a result of my own collecting and, and my dad's collecting. And you know, I, I started to notice something pretty interesting in the sports collectibles category. This was probably in late 2019. I noticed that there was a resurgence of pricing and there was the, the slight, slight inflection of it becoming culturally relevant. You were hearing influencers talking about it. You were hearing athletes talking about it. You were hearing collectors and I would hear it from my dad, this sort of rejuvenated excitement about the category. And I thought, hmm, interesting, sports cards. I haven't thought about sports cards in a very long time. Why am I just hearing about it now? And the, the more work that I did on it, the more I, I spoke to people, the more I realized that there was something pretty cool happening. Yeah. So I, I set out to, to learn as much as I possibly could, to, to do as much research as I possibly could, and I heard about this company, Collectible. Collectible, for a little context on Collectible, uh, Collectible is the number one rated sports data auction aggregator, which is a mouthful, but mm. effectively what it means yeah. is that you could go on the free Collectible data app and type in a sports collectible and it would pull up the auction results of that item since 1975. From that, they had about 20,000 users. They had all these relationships. They had all this data and connections. And I thought, you know, here, here's something that, you know, I think is a really interesting platform. It just turned out that they were actually making the pivot uh, internally prior to my getting involved. They were making the pivot internally to fractionalization. So I connected with the guys at, at Collectible. They were looking for a new CEO to, to lead the business to the new chapter. And we hit it off. They offered me the job and I wound up accepting it. So that, wow. that was in January of, uh, of 2020. And since then, you know, we got SEC qualification and, and, you know, in, uh, in April 12th, where we are right now, we've done about 73 IPOs and, and um, you know, we're, we're excited about the opportunity. So that, that's an amazing story. I'm going to go back to the very beginning of that story before we dive into those IPOs, because I got an exciting one that, that you've got coming up this week. Um, but if I were to go for the best pickle, around the campus of Umesh, where would I go? Oh, come on, come on. Is that Zingerman's? Of course, of course. There's, there's, ah. there's only one answer to that. Well, so if you're, if you're a true Michigan fan, if you spent any real time in Ann Arbor, you may know that there's actually two Zingerman locations. There's the Zingerman Deli, and then there's the, the Zingerman Roadhouse, right? Which is really, it's more of a barbecue restaurant. The Zingerman Roadhouse is a sleeper. So if, if, if anybody if anyone winds up in, in Arbor, I would highly recommend checking out the the actual Zingerman's Deli and Zingerman's Roadhouse as well. So I think I, I spent uh, the summer in Ann Arbor. I think it was 1998, uh, and I was staying in Stockwell Dorm. Which people may yeah. look at me and say, "How are you staying at Stockwell Dorm?" For those that know, it's a female dorm. Female dorm. That's correct. And uh, so there were no urinals, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> We, we were staying in the dorm for the summer and getting some credits, um, taking courses, and someone told us to go to Zingerman's. I think it was actually one of my buddy's fathers came up who was an alumni. He's like, guys, I'm taking you to Zingerman's tonight. And back then, I was like, I couldn't afford, you know, whatever, the $16 sandwich and pickles and whatever. But he took us, and it was like the best deli that we've had in a very long time. It's I'll amazing. I always remember that. It's, it's good. Good stuff. All right, so 
I've gone down now two rabbit holes, one on Zingerman's, two on the Knicks. That's, yep. you know, what we're good at. But uh, you mentioned you've got a bunch of, you know, 70 plus IPOs. You know, there's one that's coming up this week that's got my eyes. You know, there's no lack of IPOs coming out of Collectible. Um, but there's the 1994 Michael Jordan game used and signed bat. Yep. Now, I think that's super cool. For those that are unfamiliar, in 1994, Jordan took a hiatus from basketball for a variety of reasons, which there's lots of conspiracy theories about. Um, but uh, he went to go you know, try his hands at uh, baseball uh, and played for the Barons, uh, which was an affiliate of the White Sox, I believe. Yep. Um, yep. And uh, interesting stats I have here. In 1994, he had 436 at-bats. He hit 88 hits, three home runs, 51 RBIs, 30 stolen bases, but he was caught stealing 18 times. Hmm. Um, he had 114 strikeouts in those 436 at-bats. Um, he had a 202 batting average and a 266 slugging percentage. So I, I, I would probably bet on Michael Jordan, the basketball player, not necessarily Michael Jordan, the baseball player. However, he did get up there, you know, yep. had a couple home runs and, yep. and had some RBIs legitimately. Um, but this is cool, his bat. I think that is super neat. And then what I love about the collectible app is you guys show sort of, you know, the provenance of uh, many of the items. And I was reading and I was like, oh, my 1990, like late 80s, 1990s, you know, kid came out of me and I was like, oh, my goodness, this comes from Chris Chelios, his collection. That's right. And Chelios was a defenseman in the in the NHL. One of the best uh, that has ever played. Uh, maybe that's a bold statement, but at the time he was quite incredible um and uh this is from his collection so you're not only getting a michael jordan baseball bat um but it's coming from the chris chelios collection which i think is super cool what a story that's cool Ezra. that's right that's right well look we we look for rare items right we look for rare items that have fun backstories of these iconic underlying athletes and these iconic moments it's hard to argue that Jordan's retirement from the NBA and the mystery surrounding that and this storyline of the greatest in one sport trying to leapfrog into a different sport, it, it proves that playing baseball is not so easy as some of these NBA guys think it is. But yeah, there, there, there's, there's really not that many items on the market of Jordan's baseball career. We, we, we stumbled upon this. We thought it was super unique and, and we, were, we were lucky enough to grab it for the platform. That's awesome. So, all right. So we've got Collectible. Yeah. It's an app. If you have an iOS device, I assume an Android device, correct, yep. correct me, you yep. can download it. Mm -hmm. So can you walk me through? So put yourself in a user's, we're going to yep. come at this from the user, come at this from a consigner or however we want to define, you know, the supplier of an asset to you guys. Uh, so we're going to come at it from multiple sort of ways and we'll come from ideally from a buyer angle too, someone who wants to actually, mm -hmm. you know, buy an asset outright, mm -hmm. um, which I, I've heard has happened a bunch of times already with you guys. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, for those that are listening that haven't been on collectible, I'd love you to walk us through like the flow, like, you know, from downloading, setting up the account and then the actual experience. Let's talk about that. So how does that work? Our, our goal has been to create the most consumer-friendly product, the most engaging, easy-to-use experience where people can get exposure to items and assets that they would never otherwise be able to afford. 
The basic product journey is you come onto the app. Once you found an asset that you, you want to potentially make a purchase in, you go into that offering section, right? So for your Jordan Bat, you click into the, the Jordan Bat. We give you all the research, all of the data, all of the narratives that you need to, uh, to make, you know, sort of an, an informed choice if that's an investment for you. Once you've decided that you do want to participate, you click buy and you go through a pretty standard KYC AML check. I think this is something that's super, super important that I, I know um, all the other fractional companies do provide, including yep. Dibs. And uh, once, you, once you're a fully verified user, you can purchase shares. We generally try to make the share counts as affordable as we possibly can. Typically, the price point uh, per share is usually about $10 minimum. So for $10, you can buy an item that at times is, you know, is, is a million dollar plus piece. That I think is a super, super cool revelation and, and innovation that the fractional companies have been able to provide the market, right? Is to open up the market to millions and millions of participants who otherwise never would. We did a lot of work in this category and what we saw was that the investment returns were the most sustainable and the most uh, profitable at the upper echelon of the industry. The problem was the upper echelon of the industry was never, was never was never affordable, accessible yeah. to the masses. We, we didn't think that was right. We didn't think that that was the most elegant and transparent way to get true pricing of the industry. And, you know, we, we were also, we were generally very curious. We were very curious how big this collectible category could be when you introduce the, the powerful combination of unique and exciting consumer experience, better transparency, uh, better, better regulation, and more access. And, you know, what, what, what we've seen so far is, is that there is, there is tons of demand out there and there's tons of interest for it, tons of interest for it. So we're, we're incredibly excited both for Collectible, for all the other fractional companies out there and for, for, the, for the industry at large as well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read some uh, uh, terms and some numbers hmm. and I'm going to try and say it back in layman's so that we could all understand it. And I want you to correct me. So for if, if I'm wrong. Uh, which I'm known to be <laughs> quite a bit, um, but I'm lucky to have someone like you to correct me. So uh, this 1994 Michael Jordan game used and signed bat, which by the way, by the time this podcast hits Spotify and Amazon and Apple and et cetera, will have gone IPO because yep. it's IPOing in three days. So 4.15 at 1 p.m. Um, so it already have gone out, but the market cap uh, as of now is $49,750. The offering amount is $27,250. Yep. The price per share is $10, as you were just alluding to, which means that there's 2,725 shares. So if I take the offering amount as $27,250, I divide that by $10 per share, I get that 2,725 shares. My question is what happened between the 49,750 market cap and the offering amount of 27,250. So just rough math, 22,200 or $500. So $22,500. Who's where, where's, where's that $22,500? Is that, uh, and it doesn't just have to be for this, you know, Michael Jordan bat specifically, yep. it could be for anything. What's the difference between the offering amount and the market cap? One, one thing that we saw when we first got into this category is we were blown away by the fact that there was such little seller flexibility. 
right? If you take a step back and you rewind about one year's time, if not less, the only options to get liquidity or to sell items in the collectible category was to sell all of it or sell none of it. Ah. Our, our view was that if you could produce some mechanism where sellers could sell partial ownership and retain partial ownership in an item, that there was really an untold amount of liquidity and optionality that you could create, right? So collectible really prioritized introducing this concept of retained ownership to the market. We were the first fractional ownership company to bring it to the market and to really prioritize it in a way that I'm, I'm sure you've seen from collectible in a lot of the offerings. So that, that additional 22,000 plus is equity that is being retained by the consigner of the item to the platform. They get a, a portion of the consignment price in cash proceeds, and they get a portion of the consignment price as equity in the offerings, which lives in their collectible portfolio and can be freely traded over time on our secondary market. Fascinating. What I see interesting to me is in my day job, you know, we invest in, in businesses that have founders and, you know, when there's a liquidity event, we like the founders to roll some part of their equity forward to believe in sort of the next uh, evolution of, of that respective business. And, uh, you know, what's interesting to me here is if I equate that back, it's, you know, the consigner believing in the future of the asset to the point where they will roll some of their value forward and not completely exit the asset because it could send a signal to the market where, you know, if the consigner was to go, you know, I just want to sell it, get rid of it and, you know, hold zero dollars in it you know, the, the market may say, well, why? <laughs> like, what's this? If, if, if we're going to buy, <laughs> then this guy doesn't or this gal doesn't see the upside to, you know, the asset. Um, I kind of like that the, uh, the uh, consigner has the ability to hold on to it a bit. And it's a nice signal to the market, not to say that it's right every single time. Um, but it's a nice signal to the market saying, hey, they believe in the future of it, too. They want to go for the ride, um, which is cool. I like that flexibility. Do a lot of folks do that or, or not really? Like how a do you see too. that across? A lot too. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it is. It, it's something that, you know, we, we think is, is a really powerful thing for the industry. Again, you know, there's, there, there are so many stories out there, especially over the last couple of years of people selling items only to kick themselves and see that they've 10 x right? And so our, our view is that, you know, there are a lot of people who wanted to take some chips off the table, who needed liquidity for whatever reason, some, some to lock in profits, other because they have a family and they have to pay for tuition, or there's, there's a million reasons why someone would need liquidity for, for their collectibles. And we, we thought, you know, our job was to provide opportunities, to provide opportunities for the buyers, right, for the fractional investors to get exposure to items that they never otherwise would have exposure to, and to provide opportunities for sellers to be able to liquidate full or partial ownership of their items uh, at advantageous and sort of flexible terms to them. I think the, the bull case for, for retained ownership is, yeah, is the fact that it's created this additional flexibility. We've seen time and time again in virtually every market that you and I have probably studied that reducing frictions is generally good for the market. I think we've reduced a friction here of people not having to sell 100% of the item. Now, you know, in full transparency, I know there are, there are some people who don't like this concept of retained ownership because what it, what it does do is that it gives undue control, 
rightfully or wrongfully, to the consigners in the case of any kind of potential exit opportunity. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, Collectible has, has received a lot of buyout opportunities for items that are on our marketplace. Because of the way our buyout process works, the consignors uh, who retain ownership get a pro rata shareholder vote. So their vote counts largely more than all the other unique investors on the cap table. That's, that's the trade-off. But you know, the, the, the other trade-off there, of course, is that generally speaking, when consignors are retaining a large amount of equity, they, they're, they're not doing it you know, to be charitable. They're, they're doing it because they probably believe that there is upside that's remaining in the item and they, they want to have exposure to, to be able to capture that upside. Again, our, our job and our view is that our, you know, we're here to create liquidity, we're here to create opportunities, we're here to create a more functional and seamless market, and the retained ownership component, while not perfect, and there'll be people who love it, people who hate it, we, we thought that it was a really important feature and function to build out in the same way how people in the public markets have a great deal of flexibility, or in the private markets, people have a great deal of flexibility. You can sell partial stakes in something. You could buy Facebook stock at 50 bucks and ride it up to $200, and you might want to sell partial ownership. You might want to sell, you know, you might want to sell down, uh, you know, a percentage of your position. You might think Facebook's going to 1,000, right? But if you're sitting on a lot of gains, you might want to take some some chips off the table. That's that's what we've created here, and we're, we're thrilled to, to, to have brought this innovation to the market. What is the, the famous Wall Street saying? It's bears make money, bulls make money, and pigs get slaughtered. Yep. And this is this is the way to play that game. Um, and so, you know, so ha- so we, we talked about the user experience, you know, and a user can buy into an IPO um, or they can buy shares of someone who wants to sell their shares that they had bought into an IPO. Is that how it worked? Yeah. So yeah. So we, we we take these items public, and once we take them public, they define then define what public is. Like, yep, will so, we read about it on like the Nasdaq or something? Soon. One no. Day. But that, yeah. One so <laughs> to to take them public, right? So we so we consign items. We are we're almost exclusively consignments, meaning that you know we don't take inventory risk in our business. We consign them from people who who give us the exclusive opportunity to sell their items to the public. After we've consigned them, we do pretty much everything else, right? We insure it, we vault it, and we get it securitized by the SEC. We literally create, in layman's terms, we create little mini companies out of every collectible item, right? So we were talking about that Jordan Bat, for instance, right? We literally create a Jordan Bat LLC. We get that uh, approved and qualified by the SEC. After we do that, we then bring it to the public, not on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, but through the collectible exchange. Awesome. Uh, as, you, as you alluded to before, we create share counts, we create shares outstanding, and people of all income brackets all across the country, hopefully soon all across the world, have the ability to purchase real equity ownership in that collectible item. And so who determines that IPO price? Yeah. So that, 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 is, that is candidly one of the biggest challenges in our industry is figuring out a price for every single item. In some cases, but it's as, easy. As it is in traditional companies, too. 100%. You know, it, it's when Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or whomever is book running you know, a business that they're going to take public. You know, setting that price is, is a lot of work. You know, what is it that the institutional investors want to pay you know, to take that out and, and bring it? So I'm curious on how that's similar or not in the in, in your world. 
Yeah, we, we do the, the, the absolute best we can to work out what we think is a fair price for our users and, and the consigners. We have a pricing committee and we have appraisers and experts on hand in different segments of the market, whether it's game use stuff, whether it's modern cards, vintage cards, baseball cards, basketball cards. We, we have a team of trusted advisors who we think are some of the best in, in, in the industry. I mean, there, there, are, there are some items which are much easier to price than others. Some have fairly liquid comps. It's, it's pretty easy to price a Jordan PSA 10 Fleer 86. It's not always so easy to price items, which in some cases have never transacted before. But we, right. we do like the- this bat. I like imagine. this bat, like this bat. So, you know, in the case of the bat, we'll look at, we'll look at what we deem to be fair comparables. And we will look at the, the rarity of the item, the, the scarcity of the item, the cultural and historical relevance. Some of it is more art than science, like a lot of valuation work is more art than science. But we, we generally think that we've, we, you know, we, we do as good of a job as you possibly can to price things uh, as fairly for, for each side of the marketplace as we possibly can. And just for, for if you're listening, you know, just to, to provide a definition, Ezra said the word comparables. Uh, another term for that is just the shortened version of that is comps. We like to use that in the investment world to basically say uh, uh, something that resembles or looks like or acts like the existing asset that you're looking to compare it with. So, you know, as Ezra was talking about, a lot of times, you know, if you're doing a one-on-one or something that's super rare, it's never transacted before. Like, like you know, this this Michael Jordan bat when he was playing on the Barons. Maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. I don't know. I haven't looked. But so you know, the team will look at other bats of or other sports assets of similar type players and look at how they've traded, and that will go into an art and science construct around creating a comparable value. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of the hardest things to do. Um, it's not a perfect science, um, but it's a good science with art. Uh, and that's what, that's basically how we think about comps or comparables, um, within the world. Um, and so I like that. Um, what happened? So on IPOs, you know, is there the chance that, uh, like, is there a hold period? Like, how does it work? So if I, if I invest in, you know, this bat when it goes public on, on Thursday, um, you know, am I locked up like a traditional IPO? Um, you know, and for listeners, that means like there's a trading window that I can't trade it or when can I start, you know, trying to, you know, sell some of my shares. So what I, what I like to do when I join podcasts is try to keep one nugget for a real breaking news story. For oh you. Boy. So I, I've got I've got a little breaking news here for the for the midlife I'm hearing crisis it first, podcast. Everybody. This this is a this this is a, a knowledge bomb coming from Ezra. So what what we've done to date is we've instituted a 90 day lockup period, meaning from the date that the asset is fully funded, we lock up the funds for 90 days, and after 90 days, that item starts trading on our secondary market. The breaking news for you is that we're actually reducing it from 90 days down to 45 days. Well, so 45, yep, slicing in half. So 45 days after the IPO is fully funded, you'll be able to trade your shares on collectible secondary market. Wow. So what, what, what's, what do you deem as the impact for that? You know, have people said, I want to trade faster than the 90 day window or are most of the buyers kind of investing in these collectibles and want to take the long view? Our, our, our view really is that, you know, this is something where it's super important to give liquidity in every way that we possibly can. 
right? You've, you've seen us give liquidity in a lot of different ways. We were the first fractional company to introduce a continuous marketplace, right? Where you can literally trade your shares every single weekday live. We uh, give inbound a lot of acquisition offers for our supply, and we're very transparent about disclosing the offers that do come into the collectible platform. And we thought it was important to, to give people liquidity options in a quicker time format than what we had been doing before. When we, when we set out with the 90 days, that was sort of industry standard at the time, and we, we didn't know what we didn't know. Right? Knowing what the back office processes are and how quickly we're able to settle all the trades and get the money uh, through escrow and what have you, we, we thought that 45 days was the right amount of time where we could provide a great deal of liquidity while making sure that all of the back office processes and functionalities which have to go into a securitized model are, are not in, in any kind of jeopardy of, of not being met. Makes sense. I imagine there's a ton of paperwork and back office stuff that has to happen. Um, and you got to give yourself enough of a time window to make that make that happen so that people... Interesting. That's fascinating. I like that. All right. 45 days. You've heard it here um, on the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast. Um, uh, a, a question. Do, do you have statistics on are most people taking the long view and just holding their, their shares? Or are people looking for the liquidity? I know you want to give options. I totally get that. And as a buyer, you know, I I like the opportunity. I like the the you know the safety and, and transparency that I have the option if yeah. I wanted to trade. But there's only so many chances that I could be an investor in a Michael Jordan baseball bat, and so I may not want to you know uh, uh, you know trade that after 45 or 90 days um, and stay in for the long run. I'm curious if you've noticed any trends that people want to stay in or not, or maybe if they're broken down by sport or by type of card or stuff like that, like, have you seen anything or is it just too early to tell? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's early for us to really notice any, any, any clear cut trends. Look at, you know, the, the types of assets that we have on collectible are ones that, you know, we, we feel good about as long-term investments, right? So we, we always, um, make it very clear that these are long-term assets. Now, in some cases, there has been a dramatic amount of price appreciation in some of the assets we've put on. The, the categories, as you know well, has been absolutely on fire, and there have been some explosive returns in a short amount of time. I think when you have these explosive returns with people who are really just finding out about this marketplace for the first time, people, people tend to want to take profits as quickly as they possibly can. What we've seen is that that initial rush of people trying to capitalize and take an immediate profit has subsided a bit. You have you know, a real sort of stabilization of the secondary market and, and people are coming in saying, look, uh, I know that I'm sitting on big profits, but I believe that there's material upside remaining in this category, whether or not they're right or wrong, that remains to be seen. I have, I have no opinion on that, of course, but you know, we, we've, been, you know, we, we've been active in, in kind of sourcing items that we believe have long-term sustainability and investability Again, you know, if you look at the data sets in this industry, the data sets are, are crystal clear, right? The, the, the highest and most sustained returns with the least correlation uh, and the best sort of stores of value have been at this upper echelon of the market where collectible is exclusively playing. And, uh, you know, we, we believe and we hope that, you know, that, that will be the case over long periods of time. So you're talking about returns. Um, we're, you know, we're talking about, talking about selling uh, memorabilia are selling cards. 
um, I've logged into the Alton Insights database, uh, and they track uh, these types of transactions over time across many different platforms. If I look at Collectible, it looks like there's been four transactions that have exited or sold. Uh, is is that is is about four correct? There's a uh, there, there, a there have now been five. Line. Yep. So we, we've okay, we've five. had we've had five we've had five exits on the platform. We had an exit what last week actually. Ah, of a, so you're ahead of Alton. Of a Will Chamberlain 1961 Fleer rookie card PSA nine, which we actually IPO'd uh, last Sunday night for two hundred thousand dollars, only to get a buyout offer. I think I believe it was literally the following day for three hundred and fifty thousand. We took a share. So one hundred fifty percent appreciation. In, in two days, in two days. And so we, what I was going to say, <laughs> what I was going to go there was, you know, you've so far, uh, you know, in the four that Alton is tracking, which was a Steph Curry signed rookie card, uh, uh, the Bird Irving Johnson, you know, top scoring card, the Patrick Mahomes Emerald RPA and the Sandy Koufax rookie card. You know, that looks like an average on average return of 98% across those four. Um, you know, the lowest being 35%, the highest being 177%, but on average with a total market cap of just over a million dollars across those four. Now you add in your other, uh, and uh, that brings your average well over 100% on the returns, which is which is impressive. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, thanks. Look, you know, our, our team has done a hell of a job of sourcing iconic items. We, we've been in the right place at the right time. We were thrilled with the type of supply which we've been able to bring to the market. And I think you know, what the market has seen from us is that we, we're going to be aggressive in bringing best-in-class supply to the market and providing best-in-class opportunities for people. You know, we heavily vet every single item that we put on the platform. We have an amazing network of suppliers and consigners and relationships of suppliers to the platform and you know we're looking for items that we believe are long-term investable are long-term you know sort of blue chips to to own that that being said this category has been on fire we've seen record prices across the board we've seen an influx um, and sort of an infusion of capital and inf an infusion of interest i think there's there's this unbelievable convergence of a couple massive bullish tailwinds, which are all sort of converging on a supply-constrained environment all at once. And that has led to these dramatic returns. Obviously, I think, you know, that that, that level of returns is probably not sustainable over long periods of time. But if you look historically at the data, this has been, historically speaking, again, no, no projections of future returns. Historically yep. speaking, this has been, uh, you know, an incredibly impressive place to park your money. The fact of the matter is, is that this has not been an asset class that has either been widely appreciated by the masses, the masses, or widely available to the masses. Our view Absolutely. is that with access will come knowledge and education around the opportunity sets in this category. With returns, it creates this flywheel effect of more people uh, evaluating it, looking into this market, different types of capital coming in. You're seeing a real infusion of institutional capital coming into the market. You're, you're seeing, you know, just just a, just a, an amazing amount of mainstream media attention just in the last couple months alone. Collectible, our company, has been has been written up in some outlets that I don't know that they've ever covered our hobby before. We've been written up by amazing. CNN and Bloomberg and Forbes and just just an amazing amount of mainstream publications who have who have huge reaches, right? And so I think, you know, what what this is really showing to you is that people are looking for alternative assets. 
And, and they're looking for alternative assets that are, are good stores of value and have proven track records over long periods of time. We've seen how this category has performed over long periods of time. We've seen how it's performed in bull markets and in bear markets, um, you know, across various different market cycles. And I think, I think people, as they're evaluating alternatives, will really come to, to see this, uh, you know, high-end sports collectibles market as, as a real area of opportunity. If that happens, it's unclear exactly how big this market could get. There, there is trillions of dollars of alternative assets being, being invested in, and there are very few that have the, the passion and the understanding as sports collectibles do. Say, yeah, I think you have one of the coolest jobs in the world. I think it's awesome. Um, so there's two areas I want to go into. Um, uh, the first uh, area being into, you know, how do you source? You know, that, that's got to be a fun job is, you know, the chief sourcing officer for collectibles. Like, you know, how do you how do you gain access to, you know, the the the, the inventory that gets then IPO? Like, that's got to be a super fun job. And how do you prioritize that inventory? Because I imagine you've got a lot of options. So how do you choose what goes up and when? And I'm sure there's a whole content calendar and cadence <laughs> and stuff to that. So I'm curious on that. Well, you know, we, we took a, I would say, a purposefully unconventional approach to building our cap table. Our view is that this is a supply constrained market, right? And that the companies who had the best supply would be really well positioned. Obviously, it's not that simple that, you know, he or she who has the best supply always wins. But our view is that he or she who had the best supply is, is really well positioned in this category. We took an active approach to developing exclusive relationships and partnerships with some of the biggest collectors, suppliers, and collections in the world. We locked up a five-year exclusive partnership with a company called Sports Immortals. Their collection was appraised for $250 million three years ago. They've been deemed as if you were to combine the Baseball Hall of Fame, Basketball Hall of Fame, Hockey Hall of Fame, and Football Hall of Fame all under one museum, you'd get Sports Immortals. Wow. Uh, the, the founder of Sports Immortals is a guy named. It was two hundred fifty million three years ago. That's so that, gotta be like who knows a billion dollars at this point. Could like, be. I mean, it's it's one of those stories. Just as a sports fan, as a collector, Darren, you'll you'll appreciate this. It's one of these stories that is literally impossible to replicate, right? So, uh, Sports Immortals was founded by a guy by the name of Joel Platt, who's a tremendous guy. Joel Platt was is considered one of the pioneers and godfathers of the, the sports memorabilia industry. He would literally befriend all these athletes, whether it was Muhammad Ali, whether it was Ty Cobb, right? And uh, he, would, he would go and, and, um, and, and tell them that, that he wanted to, you know, to kind of uh, enshrine their legacies and to keep their stories contemporary and to, and to be the, the caretakers of their items in ways that back then nobody was ascribing any type of value whatsoever to to you know to tie cob game worn cleats right or or to, or, to, or to items that had such amazing significance as we think about it today but back then it, it, it had no monetary value right so he so he amassed this incredible collection that obviously has appreciated dramatically over time back then you know his motives were not profiteering his motives were not making money his motives were just the you know he, he was he, he was a pure collector Right. And so, you know, Joel, Joel is, is really one of the, the, the pioneers and founders of this industry. And we were we were really fortunate to, to have sold him on the opportunity to kind of list his items and to carry on those those traditions and legacies through collectible. We've done that, you know, with, with numerous other different types of assets, whether it's modern basketball, whether it's vintage baseball. So, you know, through through our relationships, through our partners and just through, you know, look through through, through our network of consigners, our view. And, you know, one of the biggest KPIs 
that I look at, that our consignments team looks at, is the repeat consignment rate. Yeah. Right? People will give you a shot, but if you don't execute for them, if you don't treat them yeah, well, uh, if if you don't you know communicate well, then you're not going to be able to get them back, right? So we we I think we've now worked with 51 unique consigners, and we have about if my numbers are correct, we have about 42 repeat consigners of those 51. And my hope is that the other nine who have not repeat yet will repeat in the future after their first IPOs go off, right? So, you know, I think, look, this in many ways is a very difficult business. It's for, I'm sure all the other fractional ownership companies can probably attest to what I'm saying. This in a lot of ways is a real labor of love to kind of bring these things to the market in the ways that we do. But, you know, it's a it's an amazing opportunity. It's an amazing it's an amazing job, right, to be evaluating and thinking about just some of the finest artifacts in sports history. That's my job. I mean, it's a it's in a lot of ways. It's a true dream come true. That's a it's, it's amazing. And, you know, I want to save the best for last, which is, uh, you know, you're the CEO. This is a business of the business sort of podcast. And, you know, uh, great CEOs know the levers of the business that, you know, get the business to turn. You know, you can boil it down and say, you know, every single day I come into the office or I work from home or, you know, whatever we're doing these days. Um, and I know that I got to work on these three things because these three things are what move this particular business. You know, uh, as Amazon would say, you know, we create a flywheel and the flywheel, you know, makes things happen. As long as we're within the flywheel, you know, things are going to go the way we need them to go. And so for collectible, you know, as you, you know, Ezra, the CEO, how do you think about your levers to the business? Like, what are they that you focus on to drive, you know, collectible? Well, okay, I'll say this. One, it's, you know, it's, it's compiling the best possible team we can get. Right? This is a job that is way too big for just one person. Right? And so I think, you know, what, what, what we've been able to do really effectively is assemble just an amazing team of people who who have the vision of where we want to go, who are incredibly passionate about the category, who have you know, real incentives to continue to drive our business forward and to find people who are truly experts in what they do and to give them the space and the breathing room to, to do their function particularly well. Right? So I think you know, one, one thing that I always look at is, uh, you know, are the pieces of the team in place so that we can scale this appropriately and efficiently and continue to hit all of our metrics. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just incredibly pleased and blessed to, to, to work with the amazing team that we have. The other, you know, as we've seen it is really just is supply, right? I mean, again, I, you know, you know I'm, I'm severely simplifying our business. There's a gazillion components to it, but, you know, I think having an amazing team and having amazing supply are two things that, you know, really, really do drive the business forward. Right there, you know, if you have Absolutely. supply, consumers and buyers will, will want to come to your platform. And then it's up to you to kind of create an experience that is easy to use, convenient, um, you know, transparent, right? To reduce as many frictions as you possibly can and, um, and, to, and to just put on the, the best possible product we can. Again, we're always thinking about this from a user point of view. I think transparency and trust, right, are, are two things that really are at the core of what we can control. We, we can't always control market fluctuations. We can't always control what the market is gonna do, but we can control how we behave, how we act, uh, how transparent we are, and what our intentions are, right? And so, you know, we do everything we can to be 
as transparent as we possibly can and just to provide great opportunities for people who sometimes would have them, but in most cases would never have them. And I think if we can continue to just do what we've been doing, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be in pretty good shape. So clearly, you know, you've gotten collectible to a great spot. You know, it's, uh, you know, your, your IPOs are appreciating at least so far, you know, over 100%, you know, early investors in the platforms are probably doing really good. So to end this Midlife Crisis Cards podcast, we're going to take you from the CEO of Collectible, which you're not leaving, but we're going to add another job to you, which is the GM of the New York Knicks. Mm. And so we're going to test, not test, but we're going to get your predictions. So put your GM hat on and I'm going to start naming some options. Okay. And I'm curious if you're a hold, if you're a release, yep. if you're a trade, yep. or you're just not going to do it. Because, yep. you know, as we talked about early on, we're both Knicks fans. You know, we have, we have the future to think about now. We're yep. all positive. Uh, so, Julius Randle, what are you doing with him at the end of the season? Hold him. I mean, look, he, he's, a, he's a guy who has shown that, you know, he, he's an incredibly talented player. He's an incredibly you know, guy, a hard guy to defend. He's a hard guy to stop. He has developed an outside shot. He has improved his defense and his efficiency. He's learned how to pass. And, you know, he's, he's hungry, right? He's, he's, he's part of that, you know, heart and soul of the Knicks. You know, one, one quality I think every Knicks fan and every New Yorker likes is someone who wants that pressure, right? Who, who yes. wants to come to New York and wants to be part of that, of that savior who brings Knicks basketball back you know, into, into the forefront. And he seems to, you know, look, he, he had a very tough first year with the Knicks. A very, we, we were, the, the fan base was incredibly tough on him. And many guys would have just shriveled up and said, you know what, this city is not for me. I can't take the pressure. But no, he, he went and he killed himself in the offseason and he worked on his game and he came back hungry. I think, I think that is a sign of, of a guy who, who deserves to stay and wants to stay. So I am, I am hold. I am, he is part of the future and let's, let's, let's build around him. All right, I, I get that. I, 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 I get that. I'm going to go a little harder. That was an easy one. So I'm going to give you the next. So we're going to go on the level of, of, you know, there's only three. So the next one is Kevin Knox. What do we do? I, that, that's a tough one, right? Because he, he, he's a guy, he, I mean, his talent is tantalizing, right? Like when, when Kevin Knox is on, he's, he's just so smooth. He's so smooth. Oh, yeah. um, he, he would be trade bait for me. He'd be trade bait for me if we can get a decent return, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the problem with Tibbs is that Tibbs, for as many amazing qualities as he has, Tibbs does not have, you know, sort of a long, uh, you know, sort of stick-to-itness with, you know, sort of emerging players. So I, I'm, not, I'm just not sure that Knox will ever have his fair shake in, in a slightly tightened rotation where, you know, stars are playing 40 minutes a night. So I would, I would say try, try as best as you can to develop him a little bit and then, and then trade him for either more, you know, more draft assets or as part of a package to get probably one more star on the roster. So we'll go to the most contentious, probably New York Nick, in, in the last, I think, three years? where it's polarizing the New York. I think you probably know where this is going with Frank Nittelkina. <laughs> <laughs> I get people who love Frank, and I got people who just get him off the team. Where are you with Frank these days? Frank, Frank to me is a guy who, on a playoff contender, look, in, in a playoff game where he's got to lock down James Harden in, in game six or seven, 
I think I think he can do it, right? I don't. I, I'm I'm skeptical that Frank is ever going to develop into you know that you know kind of surefire first round draft pick stud that we all anticipated he would. But he's still so young, right? What is he? Twenty? Yeah. Two? Twenty three? Only a handful of years in the league. Right. So I I mean I think I think he is a lockdown defender. I think he's probably not much else beside that. But again, he, he's also a guy, and we've seen this time and time again from Frank, is that Frank wants to be here. He's he's not afraid to back down. He's not afraid to kind of go toe to toe with some of the. The, the best in the league. He's, he's not afraid to kind of show up LeBron James and, you know, all that. So I, I think I think Frank is what Frank is, a potential lockdown defender. He's still so young. He has so much potential. That said, if the right opportunity to package him again uh, for a real stud, you know, sort of third player in the roster, I think, I think you've got to pull the trigger on that one. So that was the Knicks. If there's one player to get in the offseason, who are we going after? I would, I would, I would love to see Lonzo Ball in the Knicks. I would love to see Lonzo. I think, I, th- I think Lonzo, you know, has the has the passing, the the vision, the you know, sort of willingness and want to play on the big stage. I think, I think Lonzo would be that you know, sort of pass first orchestrating point guard that we haven't had in a very, very long time. My 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 gut says Lonzo, but look, if the we modern get, day Chris Childs, exactly. Well, I, I was I was personally more of a Charlie Ward guy. I was I was, uh, a, I was a huge Michigan, Charlie right? Ward fan. Huge Charlie Ward fan. Huge Charlie Ward. He fan. was Michigan, right? Uh, he no, he, he went to Florida State. Oh, did Florida? Okay, yeah, Florida, Florida State. State. Yes, yes. He went to Florida State. Uh, well, my my all time favorite Nick was LJ. I was a I was a huge LJ fan. Huge LJ fan. I was I was actually at the game where he, he had his iconic four four point play. That that would actually be a very fun collectible item. The the jersey he wore during his his iconic four point play at the Garden. I look forward to seeing it on the app. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ezra, thank you for so much for taking time to talk to all of us here on the podcast. Uh, you know, we learned a ton from all of our guests, and you're you're in a space, collectibles in a space that couldn't be hotter this moment, and the opportunity to democratize and and give access to, you know. Uh, frankly, assets that that we've never, you know, been able to invest. Like only one percent of the one percent have had access to, um, and to now own shares in some of those is is just amazing. And so, you know, kudos to what you've built so far. Thank you for explaining it to all of us here on the podcast, and we look forward to uh, following Collectible and the news of going from ninety days to forty five day lockup news. period. Breaking news. That's awesome. So thank you for, Thanks, for dropping that with us, and we look forward to having you on in the future. Welcome to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast with your host, Darren Herman. This podcast explores the world of sports cards from a variety of angles. Being a hobbyist collector for over 30 years, a professional software investor and angel investor in and around the card space, and a proud father who is raising children who collect and appreciate sports cards. If you want to learn more about Midlife Crisis Cards, head over to midlifecrisiscards.com where you can read his journey to card collecting, his history, and find some awesome individual cards to purchase from his personal collection. Or check out our brand new product, The Cardboard Box, a personalized and hand-selected box of cards that arrive at your front door. On the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast, we explore the convergence of Darren's worlds in the sports card industry, where hobby meets business. Without further ado, please meet our host, Darren Herman, a.k.a. at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram and dherman76 on Twitter.